The sermon series that we're doing uh, over the course of the summer is called Come Home. And uh, the idea of this is we're going to be taking a look at each of the different 12 minor prophets. And so we're going to be, it's really actually a little bit uh, optimistic to think that you can preach one sermon on each of these minor prophets because inevitably, you know, there's a lot to cover in that. And so it's a, it's a little bit of a risk and we'll find out here in the next week or two whether it's a good uh, risk or not. Uh, we'll, you'll, you might actually know in 30 minutes whether it was a good risk or not. And uh, just so you know, the reason these are called the minor prophets, that's what, that's what we call them, it's not because they're less important than the other prophetic books. It's rather that they're shorter, they're smaller, and there are 12 of them. And over the course of, uh, of church history, they've been called the 12, or they've been called the book of the 12. And those books are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And uh, when we think about the word prophet, we typically think about it in terms of, you know, somebody who can tell the future, and that's sometimes a piece of what these prophets did, but more often than not, what they were doing is they were telling the truth to the people of God, and, uh, and what they were doing frequently was warning them uh, about ways in which they were wandering away from God, and what they were doing was they were inviting those people to come back home, to come back into a relationship with God. Today, we'll be looking at the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. But before we begin, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that in the same way that the people reading and hearing the prophecies uh, of these prophets, in the same way that they heard an invitation by you to come back and to come home uh, and to come back where there's rest and there's peace and there's life and there's goodness and there's rest, Father, let, let us also hear that same invitation to come back to you. And, and Father, at the same time, um, in that you were warning the people about the dangers of wandering away from you, I pray that we also would hear those warnings, Father. Uh, but ultimately, I pray that each of these books would cause us to look to your Son, Jesus, in whom we find our hope and in whom we find our rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So on December 26, 2004, the third largest earthquake ever record, recorded occurred in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Now, it, it's interesting. It happened in the Indian Ocean. It registered a 9.1 on the seismograph, which is just absolutely astonishingly huge. And uh, what happened was is uh, when this earthquake happened at the bottom of the Indian, Indian Ocean, it created waves that were over 100 feet high. So some of you may have seen the devastation that occurred from this. Not only were the waves... 100 feet high, but they traveled as much as 500 miles an hour. Just amazing. And so what happened was, as, as these waves radiated out from the epicenter of this, this, uh, this earthquake at the bottom of the ocean, uh, it damaged and destroyed boats. It hit islands. It destroyed people. Ultimately, 227,000 people died. What was interesting, however, is there was one people group called the Moken people group, M-O-K-E-N. We've got a picture of them up here in just a second. They're known as the sea gypsies. And so they live out in the open ocean, and they, make, they live their whole lives on these boats as sea gypsies. Uh, they hunt with spears, and so you, they'll see fish, and they jump off the boat, and they spear these fish. It's absolutely amazing. But not a single one of the Moken people ended up dying. It was just absolutely amazing. And so what happened was, is after this uh, tsunami hit, uh, again, there were, you know, there's just devastation everywhere. There were people floating at sea. There were boats that had been overturned. It was the Moken people who responded first to go around and to pick up survivors out of the water. Inevitably, what happened was, is after uh, everything was over, reporters came down to where all these different places hit, 
And they interviewed the Moken people and they said, how is it that you survived? And they said, the reason that we were able to survive is because we listened to the warning signs of the sea and we listened to the warning signs of nature. And they described how the birds went silent. And they described how the fish, instead of swimming in with the high tide, they swam out, which is not what they ordinarily do. They talked about all these different warning signs of the sea, and they said that's how we knew that this was coming, even when the people, the other fishermen on the other boats and the people in the mainland had no idea what was happening. It's because they paid attention to the warning signs. Now, what's interesting is we look here at the book of Malachi today, and we see that there are warning signs as well. But these warning signs aren't coming from the birds. They're not coming from the ocean, right? Rather, these warnings are coming from God himself. And so the question is, what warnings do we hear God giving us in the book of Malachi? We're going to cover a series of these different warnings. We're going to cover four warnings that, that God ultimately gives to the children of Israel. And also to us as well, but we're going to begin with the first one, which is found in Malachi chapter 1. And what he warns the children of Israel about is unfaithful worship, insincere worship. I'm going to read just little snippets of each of these. But here's what God says to the children of Israel through Malachi. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, But then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord, for I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And so the first things that Malachi addresses with the people of Israel is their worship. It's the very first thing he says, this is where we've got to begin. Because what's happening is the children of Israel and the people of Judah, they're showing up to worship and they're bringing something to God, but instead of bringing their best thing, which is what God clearly required, They're just bringing the leftovers. In this case, they're bringing injured, lame, or diseased animals. Their actions fundamentally reveal the reality of their hearts. And we see this pattern over and over again in Scripture. We'll just look one place, and we'll look at the very beginning of Scripture right after the fall. We'll look at the story of Cain and Abel. So we'll look at Genesis chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. Here's what we read. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, or the best, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And if you guys remember, the end of the story is that Cain kills Abel because he's jealous about God's favor and God's pleasure towards Abel. The question is, Why did God reject Cain's offering? And the answer is that while Abel brought his best, the fat portions, to the Lord, Cain simply brought something, not his best things. That makes sense? And so we see this over and over again in Scripture, where instead of bringing our best to the Lord, we bring whatever the leftovers are. So the question for us this morning is, what do we offer God in worship? Do we offer our best, right? Do we offer the first fruits? Or are we simply trying to appease him by giving him something, right? And so that could be when you come to worship on a Sunday morning, you need to ask yourself, what am I giving to God? And the reality is, is your best isn't perfection. Your best is actually the reality of your hearts. When Kristen and I go out on a date, what she doesn't want me to do is pretend like everything's great. She wants to know my whole heart. 
And that's exactly what God desires for us as well. Our best is that we show up and we're completely real with him. We give him all of our attention and all of our focus. The same thing could be said in private worship. The tension that I feel is uh, in the mornings, I get up at 6 or 6.30, and the first thing I try to do after putting on a pot of coffee is uh, I get out my Bible, I get out a notebook, and I try very hard to give God my best. And the truth is I'm batting about maybe 290 because a lot of times my phone beckons me, right? Whether it's texts that have come in since I went to bed at 9 o'clock at night or whether it's the news feed popping up with news stories or maybe it's from chargers.com letting me know of the important things that are happening for the San Diego Chargers, a.k.a. the Los Angeles Chargers. But the reality is I have to sort of catch myself at times and remind myself that what God really longs for is my whole heart. What what he really longs for is my best. And he comes to the children of Israel in this case, and he says, you're not giving me your best. In fact, you're being careless, right? And he calls them, he warns them about bringing him something other than their best. The second thing we see after unfaithful worship is unfaithful priests. And so we're going to look again here in chapter 2 now. He says this, And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. And you will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from their sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So if the first issue that God addresses with the children of Israel is unfaithful or insincere worship, the second issue is unfaithful priests. Specifically, they're faithless because they're not honoring God, he says. They aren't standing in reverence and awe. In other words, people like me or your campus outreach workers or your young life workers or your wind-shaped folks, part of what we as leaders, religious leaders, are supposed to do is we're supposed to stand in awe in the presence of God. Those priests weren't doing that, and frequently we don't either. And it's not only that their attitude is not one of reverence, it's actually the opposite. It's carelessness. Their actions revealed the reality, again, of their hearts. It seems that they're being dishonest even, not preserving and teaching the truth. They've turned from the way, and as a result, the very people that they're supposed to be leading are stumbling and falling away from God, this tells us. God then contrasts these faithless, dishonest priests, careless priests, with the careful priest Levi. He says this in verse 5, my covenant, my original covenant was with him, a covenant of life. In other words, when we submit ourselves to truth, when we submit ourselves to God, what we gain from that is life, right? We become truly human. We become more human and peace. And I gave them to him, this called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. In other words, part of what 
the CO workers, the Young Life workers, the Windshape workers, part of what we're all supposed to do is actually supposed to speak truth in order to turn people away from their sin. Now, not many of us in this room are priests, although maybe John Huggins and John Parker technically are. I'm not sure what the titles are. But not many of us in this room are priests, but almost all of us are in leadership in some way where we have the opportunity and the responsibility to walk with God and to represent him to others. In other words, all of us, in some respect, have the ability to stand with reverence and with awe in the presence of God, and then to be moved in such a way so that we then teach the truth to those who follow us. There will always be a temptation, always be a temptation to soften aspects of God or of the Bible that don't fit in nicely with our given culture at a particularly given moment in time. It could be salvation by faith in Christ alone. It could be God's perspective on human morality. There's always some part of God's economy that is in direct opposition with our cultural economy. And the cure for this temptation to be dishonest as priests or preachers or ministers of the gospel, it's not just to try harder and to try to be braver. Rather, the cure is to stand in awe at God's presence. Does that make sense? When you stand in awe at God's presence, all of a sudden you're like, you know what, you can't argue with that. Like I'm, I'm standing at the top of the Rocky Mountains and I'm looking over these mountains in front of me, they're snow-capped. You can't argue with that, right? When you stand on the ocean and a storm is coming in towards the beach and you look and you see the lightning striking in the water, you can't argue with that. Does that make sense? The cure for our dishonesty, the cure for my faithlessness as a preacher is to stand in awe of God Almighty, because all of a sudden, what happens is I care much more about representing and revealing him as he truly is to those who I speak to than about pleasing them. I'm not sure some of you in this room have probably been to Westminster Abbey, and uh, I don't know what it takes to, uh, to get into Westminster Abbey, but what happens is there are over 600 graves that are located in there, and as you walk into the foyer of Westminster Abbey, there's actually a bust on the wall uh, for a man named John Laird Mayer. And uh, he ultimately, he lived in the middle of the 1800s, died in 1879. But as you look at this bust and you ask yourself, how did this guy get in Westminster Abbey? What you see when you read the plaque that's right b- below the, the bust is this. John Laird Mayer, First Lord Lawrence of the Punjab, so he served in India, who from the civil service of the East India Company, rose to viceroy. His viceroyalty promoted, now listen to what he promoted, the welfare of the Indian people and the confirmed and confirmed the loyalty of the chiefs and the princes. Goes on to say, his devotion to public duty was ennobled by the simplicity and purity of his private life. And here's the quote. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. Let me read that one more time. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. This monument records the love and the pride with which his memory is cherished by his widow and children. Born March the 4th, 1811, died 27th of June, 1879. I love that quote. He feared man so little because he feared God so much. And I pray that that would be true of me as a pastor I pray that it would be true for those of you who work for Campus Outreach, for Young Life, for Windshape, for, uh, for all of us as husbands and wives and parents, as teachers, that we would fear man so little because we fear God so much, because we stand in awe of his presence. So far, God has spoken about unfaithful priests, 
unfaithful worship, and the next thing he talks about is unfaithful husbands. We're going to look at verse 13 of Malachi chapter 2. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you've been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking, godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Pretty heavy words, pretty stern warning for our culture. Faithless priests, insincere worship. And now God condemns the husbands of Israel for being unfaithful to and for divorcing their wives. Listen to the gravity with which God treats such shameful behavior. First, God says, when we're unfaithful to the wives of our youth and when we divorce them, it is violence, right? In fact, what it says is that he covers his garment with violence. In other words, the blood of your wife is on your clothing. It's violence to her. What's interesting is is that the U.S. National Library of Medicine has a huge article written on the impacts of divorce by broken up by gender. And here's part of what it says. It says, who suffers more from divorce, men or women? After divorce, women experience disproportionate declines in household income and standard of living, as well as sharp increases in the risk of poverty. Women may also face a higher risk of losing home ownership and falling down the housing ladder. Women's lower chances of repartnering and responsibilities as a single parent may further impede their path to economic recovery. Some of you know the story of my grandfather leaving my grandmother, divorcing her when my mom was seven, and my grandmother lived in poverty for the rest of her life as a result of him leaving her. And so that evidence is borne out not only uh, due to, to hard data, but also anecdotally. But what's interesting is not only are the financial impacts of divorce more difficult and detrimental upon women, research shows that women are also more negatively impacted psychologically as well. And regardless of whether you're male or female, just about every person I've ever talked to who has gone through a divorce says exactly the same thing. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, right? It's violence, says God. And listen to what else God has to say about this. Listen to the honor and the gravity that God himself declares upon marriage. Verse 15 tells us that God made husband and wife one. In other words, at marriage, when the marriage covenant occurs, there's a new ontological being. It is the two people having become one. And it goes on to say that he gave their union a portion of his spirit. And so verse 15 says this, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking God, the offspring? So God invented marriage to be a mirror of the Trinity, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He makes the marrying couple one, and then he gives them as one flesh a portion of his spirit. Just think about that for a moment. Think about what that means, that when you entered into a relationship with your spouse, that you actually became a new ontological being, and that God blessed that new ontological being with a portion of his spirit. And so when we're unfaithful or when we divorce, we actually, we break, we dishonor, we do violence 
to the image of God in that new union. And so it's violence. Not only that, he goes on to say that, that he's a witness at our weddings. Every marriage covenant is attended by witnesses. We kind of know that for those of us who've been through marriages and who've been to marriages recently. You know, the most common wedding vows read, I, Brian, take you, Krista, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. In this passage, this Malachi passage, however, God states, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. In other words, God isn't just a witness, he's the primary witness at our wedding ceremonies. Does that make sense? Like, not only does he create us one, not only does he then give that oneness a portion of his spirit, but then he says, and I'm the primary witness at your wedding. And all of these truths, all of this weight, all of this gravity that God declares about weddings, about marriages, about the the wedding covenant, should awaken us as a culture, as a church, to the fact that God places a gravity and a weight and a solemnity upon marriage that I promise you that few of us actually grasp, right? I don't even know what it means that he grants us a portion of his spirit, right? I don't know. I've never read that before. I've never, you know, written on it before. But ultimately what we see here is, again, that divorce and infidelity then do violence to the beauty of God's creation of marriage. And so let me just ask you for a moment, those of you in this room, how do you view your marriage? Do you view your marriage as a special creation of God, by God, where you and your spouse become one, a new ontological being? And do you know and do you realize that God has blessed your oneness with a portion of his spirit, that your union is special in some way that is much greater and much more weighty than we have any idea? And so God, again, is speaking to the children of Israel. He's warning them, right? He's speaking truth to them. He's warning them about unfaithful worship. He's warning them about unfaithful priests, and he's warning them about unfaithful husbands. And then finally, we see that God warns the children of Israel about unfaithful giving. Instead of jumping right in to this passage, which I'll get to in a minute, I'm going to tell a little story. It was written by, that's not a story, it's a true story, uh, by Ken Shigematsu, and he's actually a Japanese pastor. And uh, he tells this story about his wife. I'm going to read it. It's from a little article I read of his. Uh, but he begins by saying this, My wife Psycho's family loves animals. And by the way, it's spelled S-A-I-K-O. I realize that sounds like psycho. Anyway, but it's not. It's not spelled the same way. Anyway, so my wife uh, Psycho, uh, her family loves animals. They regularly take abandoned cats or dogs or even an abandoned ferret into their home. In the city of Osaka, Japan, her family's home has become the neighborhood de facto pet refuge. At one point, she even took in a wild chipmunk. This chipmunk had been the runt of the pack, and the veterinarian had said it would probably only survive a few days. So my wife, Psycho, named him Forte with the hope that he would grow strong. He not only survived, but he began to thrive. When Psycho came back to her apartment in the evening after work, Forte would wake up and run excitedly around her apartment doing figure eights. Or if Psycho was working on her computer at home, he would scamper up and down the keyboard, pressing on random characters. She noticed that Forte would take his most treasured possessions, his walnuts, the walnuts that she had given him, and he would place them and store them where he slept. Apparently, this was a kind of hibernation instinct for him. But as his relationship with Psycho developed, he began to take half of his walnuts and put them under her pillow. (laughs) 
he somehow came to understand that Psycho was the one who provided for him and was his family. So out of gratitude, he wanted to share with her what he had so freely been given. Kind of a cute story. It's a cute story, but it's also a reminder of what our attitude should be like towards God who cares for and provides for us. However, as we know, it's very easy for us to lose sight of God's provision and our responsibility to him. It's very easy for us to forget that we're actually stewarding everything that he's entrusted us with. It's actually his. It's his money. I'm his, I'm his person, right? Everything I have belongs to him. We forget that, and so do the children of Israel. Malachi chapter 3 beginning at verses 7, addresses this. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Infidelity, divorce, unfaithful worship, unfaithful priests, and now God confronts his people over their sin of not giving to him, of not tithing. He says this, return to me and I will return to you. And so it's clear that the Israelites, they feel distant from God, right? They feel some, somehow separated from him. And we know that feeling of being distant from God, of being separated from him as well. I've been in ministry long enough to know that's one of the main questions I I deal with with people. Why do I feel so distant from God? Why do I feel like he's not hearing me? And sometimes we feel distant from God just because of the weight of the fall, right? I mean, we know from Genesis chapter 3 that part of the punishment for sin is that we are cast out of the garden. We're no longer regularly in God's presence. And so sometimes it's just the fall. Sometimes we feel distant because of physiological or psychological reasons, right? Sometimes we feel distant from God because we're not actually carving out time to be with him. It's not unlike our human relationships. If you don't carve out time to be with your friends, if you don't carve out time to be with your wife or your husband or your, or your children, if you don't carve that time out, you're going to feel distant from them. Sometimes, however, we feel distant from God because of sin, right? That's what Psalm 66 says. Surely if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened or the Lord would not have heard my cry. And so here, the sin barrier is revealed to the people, the children of Israel, by God. He says this, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. And so clearly the people have made a choice to withhold from God what he's entrusted to them. And yet he comes to them not just with a rebuke, but also with an invitation. And I love this part. He says, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, he says, repent. Turn back to me, and I'll forgive you, right? Then, then we'll be restored. But it's not just an invitation. He also even gives them a challenge. He says this in verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be, not be enough room to store it. And so since the beginning of Seven Hills Fellowship, I've been intentionally removed from the financial areas of the church. I don't know what anybody gives, and I don't ever touch money. In fact, whenever people try to hand me money, I say, hey, give it to Katie, give it to Brenda Briggs, put it in the mail slot. So I promise in preaching on this today, I'm not actually talking to any of you in particular because I have no idea what any of us gives. 
I am, however, talking to all of you in general when I say that God challenges us to give him, give to him first. And then he says, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. And so that's my prayer for those of us that are here this morning, is that we would actually take God up on that challenge, right? So let me just end really quickly by saying this. There have been lots of rebukes. There have been lots of warnings. Um, The question is, where's the good news? Where's the hope? And the answer for the children of Israel that Malachi was speaking to, and the answer for us is found in exactly the same place, or rather person, and that is Jesus, who ultimately was what we couldn't be and did what we couldn't do. Unfaithful husbands, is that, is that our problem? Jesus was the ultimate faithful husband. That's why Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He did what we cannot do. Not only that, but if unfaithful priests are the problem, then we look at Jesus who was the faithful high priest, Hebrews 14 says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, in other words, he did it, he's done, he's seated at the right hand of God, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne, that's this morning, we can approach God's throne, we can approach him in prayer, with confidence, his throne of grace, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Unfaithful giving, Jesus was the ultimate faithful sacrifice. Ephesians 5 tells us again, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God unfaithful worship, whereas we offer God the leftovers of our energy, our focus, and our lives, Jesus gave his all to glorify his Father. Listen to John 17. This is the last night of Jesus' life. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And so as we read the book of Malachi, as we look over these verses, we see all these ways in which they were unfaithful, and we're reminded, frankly, of the ways in which we've been unfaithful. We can still come to God in confidence and security that our hope is found ultimately in the mercy that we receive because of the perfect life and death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you that whatever warning that we receive, um, that our hope is Jesus. Father, I thank you that, um, that like any good parent might um, warn a daughter or a son, that we would realize that the reason for that warning is ultimately because we love our children and you love us. And so, Father, I pray that we would hear these warnings today um, from you in the book of Malachi, and I pray that we would actually see them for what they are, that, they would, that they're declarations of your love for us, a desire for us to flourish, a desire for us to thrive, a desire for us to have life and peace. And Father, I thank you 
that knowing that we could not obey all of these standards completely, you sent your son Jesus um, to be the one who would obey them perfectly. And so, Father, our hope and our security and our trust today is found in you, our good Father, and in your son Jesus, our perfect sacrifice. And so, Father, we pray all these things today in his name. Amen.